0: We're in 1 Samuel 13 and 14 today. Uh, we are not going to read all of 1 Samuel 13 and 14 because uh, that would be quite a lot of reading. 75 verses. So I'm going to sort of do a combination of the two. I'm going uh, to describe to you what's happening in these stories because um, they're multiple stories, but they belong together. Uh, and then I'll read portions of it. And I invite you to go back and check my work and read all 75 verses yourself. Um, We we left Samuel in 1 Samuel 12, who's saying goodbye to Israel as the leader. He's not dead yet, and he'll still show up in the book, but he is not the one who is leading Israel anymore. Saul now is kind of fully stepping in to his role as the king of Israel. And if you remember, they're kind of in the end of 1 Samuel 12, they're in the air is this warning about what might happen if Israel forgets who they are. And uh, they've been warned multiple times that the thing that they want, this king that's like all the other nations, is is not going to be good for them, actually. It's going to end up being bad for them. And we can see in 1 Samuel 13 and 14 uh, that this starts to happen. Things very quickly go downhill. Uh, it's not all bad news. It's, it's good news mixed in here. <clears throat> Same, uh, Saul doesn't start off as a crazy guy. He's actually relatively effective uh, at doing what they want him to do. Uh, there is here this uh, Saul is confronted with Israel's persistent problem with the Philistines. And the Philistines are these uh, Mediterranean people that have come and settled here in Canaan. And they have a superiority in tactics and numbers and, most importantly, technology. And that kind of gets hinted at here in these two chapters, that they they have weapons that Israel doesn't. And they're really there because Israel didn't do what they were supposed to well before then and clear the land like they were supposed to. So this is a persistent problem that they're having to deal with. And Saul in uh, 13 is, is fighting them um, and leading them into battle, as he's done previously. And here in 13, he doesn't experience success. He's not successful. <coughs> and I'm going to read from uh, 1 Samuel starting 13.8, and we'll close out this chapter. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering there to me and the peace offering, and he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he'd finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to him and to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him, stayed and gave Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash, and raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual, another company turned toward Beth Horon, another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now there is no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears." But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening axes. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them, and the garrisons of the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So Saul is, uh, has, in a sense, just prior to this, led an exodus out of Israel. Things have happened the opposite of how they're supposed to. Israel's supposed to drive out the enemies of, of Israel, and instead Israel has evacuated across the Jordan. They've um, executed a reverse conquest, and the people are starting to dissipate, and Saul is waiting to offer up this offering. Samuel has told him to wait for him. That was the clear instruction, and Saul says... Uh, It's been like a week. The people are leaving. Let's just get this thing done. We've got problems. And Samuel comes and delivers this news. Uh, Because of this, the kingdom will be ripped out of your hand. And then here at the end of this chapter, there's this mention of this person, Jonathan, who's not really been introduced to us yet. And Jonathan, we find out in 14, is the son of the king. He is the son of Saul. So Jonathan is actually... Uh, one of the people, one of the most people most directly affected by this pronouncement of judgment because the kingdom has effectively been ripped out of his hand. And chapter 14 is this comparison then, this contrast between Jonathan and Saul. That's why these two chapters go together. And Jonathan, we're kind of reading and saying, what is his response going to be? This is affecting him and his children, his children's children. And we find actually that Jonathan is a profoundly different person than his father. He's far different. Jonathan and his armor bearer go to this place Michmash, where the Philistines are in one side of a canyon, basically a gorge, and Israel's on the other. And Samuel and I mean uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer basically say, "Let's go make trouble." Let me read you what he says. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So Jonathan and his boy climb down this cliff, and apparently these cliffs are so gnarly that the two walls have names. It's not a good sign when the walls are named. That means it's a for real climb. So they they climb down this blackberry-covered, thorn-ridden side and across and then up. And the Philistines come see them coming. And they're like, look, the Israelites are coming out of this hole in the ground, basically. And they're taunting them and saying, you know, come get yours. Like, we'll teach you a lesson. And apparently Jonathan and his armor bearer have... uh, they're experienced climbers, and they're not deterred by this effort, and they get up and they, they, they kick butt. I mean, that's what they do. They get up there, and they wipe out whatever this little crowd is, 20-something people. And then the text says the terror of God falls on the Philistines. And the people start killing each other. And somehow, two people, Jonathan and his armor-bearer, lead this charge that wipes out the Philistine oppressors. Miraculously. Jonathan is just this guy who has said, let's go for it. The Lord may do something great with even just two of us. And so there's this strange incident then where we see more of the character of Saul. There's been a long day. There's a lot of fighting, but the fighting is not done, so Saul tells his people Don't eat anything. If if we're not done killing, you're not going to start eating. It's this irrational, irrational, over-the-top command. And the people, they don't reach out and and eat the, the honey that's sort of dripping from these trees, but instead, they just turn out to be so hungry from fighting that they just kind of kill animals where they stand and just like start eating them basically raw, uncooked. This is A, gross, B, unhealthy, and C, most importantly, for their purposes, it's against the law of Israel. You cannot eat the blood of an animal. The blood of an animal, of a person, represents the life of that being, and and Yahweh is the one who owns life. You can't just, you can't eat the blood. So Saul then freaks out, and uh, he says, we've got to have a sacrifice. And oh, by the way, anybody who eats anything else, they'll, they're going to die. And Jonathan, his son, has not heard this command. And Jonathan, his son, dips his staff in the honey and eats it. And so then, this is our final piece that we'll read out loud. There's this sort of council to find out who has broken the command of Saul. This is 36 of chapter 14. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning of light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. When Saul said, "'Come here, all you leaders of the people, "'and know and see how this sin has arisen today. "'For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, "'though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. "'But there was not a man among all the people "'who answered him. "'Then he said to all Israel, "'You shall be on one side, "'and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. "'And the people said to Saul, "'Do what seems good to you. "'Therefore Saul said, "'O Lord God of Israel, "'why have you not answered your servant this day?' If this guilt is in me or is in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God, Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt in your people, Israel, give Thummim. These are two stones that Israel uses for decision-making. Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. In other words, the stones pointed to Jonathan and Saul. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan, and Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. And the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so they he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Final section of 14 is just a recounting of Saul winning quite a few battles after. This is a strange couple of stories, and it's hard maybe to to hold them both in your mind at the same time, but it's important that you do because the text is trying to smash these two people together and make a comparison for us. Saul acts very differently than his son. Saul is given a direct and clear command of what he should do. Wait here to offer up the offering. And Saul waits. Saul waits what seems to be a reasonable amount of time. And Saul gets afraid because the people start wandering, the enemy is camped on the other side. And so, Saul does a good thing. He offers up an offering. That is a good thing. That's a thing established and ordained by God, commanded by God. But Saul does it on the wrong day against the orders of Samuel. And in that moment, the kingdom is taken from him. Now, Jonathan is the one whom the kingdom has been taken from, ultimately. And Jonathan is presented with a similar choice. And Jonathan, it seems like, behaves foolishly. Jonathan is across a gorge from the enemy. And he decides by himself, he and his boy are going to go over there and fight this garrison of Philistines by himself. That seems like a terrible idea. I am not a military technician, but I am decent at math. 20, 40, 60 to 2, those are bad odds. But Jonathan's rationale is different. Because when he makes his decision, he does not look around him in fear and wonder if God might save his people. He looks out in trust, and he says, come, let's see what could happen. God can do great things with many or with few. And this is precisely the opposite of the rationale that his father has used. The people are wandering from me. We are becoming fewer and fewer. What might then happen to us if we lose all of our people? Jonathan flips that rationale and says, it doesn't matter how many of us there are. Let us then dare to do big things with God, because God might be on our side, and we might yet win. And he wins. This great and miraculous victory. You know, I get, um, I get questions about... Uh, how to know what what is the right thing? How to obey God? How to find the will of God? Um, because I'm a pastor, I'm just designated as answer haver, and people and I and I and I teach at a college and I, I work with college students. And if you don't remember, when you come to the end, end of college, you don't know what you're supposed to do. And everybody's asking you all the time, oh, you're going to graduate soon. What are you going to do? And it's terrifying because most people say, I have no idea. I'm trying to pass all my finals and get out of here. I don't know how I'm going to pay all of these bills that are waiting for me. What do I do? How do I know the will of God? And oftentimes, people are waiting for the kind of direction that Saul gets. Do this until this happens, and then do this. Those are the easy kind of directions, right? And those are the kind we want. Please, in my mailbox, deliver for me a map of what I should do over the next few months. Years would be even better. And when that doesn't happen, people become paralyzed. What should I do? This is scary. How do I figure this out? And of course, this is not a problem that leaves you after you leave college. This follows you for the rest of your life. Sorry, college students. it's not going away. And oftentimes, what I try to encourage people to think about is the way that God deals with his people is a lot more like what we see with Jonathan than it is with Saul. Now, what happens with Saul is real, and sometimes God sends very clear direction. Do this or do not do this. And when God sends clear direction that way, either by his word or by wisdom from your friends around you, you should definitely pay attention to that. But a lot of times, you don't get that mailbox instruction. And what you are invited to do is the same thing that Jonathan is invited to do, which is to say, what can I do for God Might we dare to do something today? Now, that doesn't, there's no guarantee. Jonathan is not given a word that says, if you climb this wall and attack this garrison with the two of you, definitely God will do something for you. The dude could have fallen and broken his back, could have lost. We see this same kind of mentality in the book of Daniel when Daniel's three friends are confronted and they they confront Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to bow down to your your image. And you can throw us in the fiery furnace. And our God can save us. But even if he doesn't, we still won't bow. And this sort of courage is rooted in what's behind this kind of decision-making. There is either fear, or there is trust. If you are constantly afraid that life will not be okay, and that God will not be faithful to you, his, one of His people, then you become paralyzed in decision-making, waiting for special revelations, special feelings, warm fuzzies, lights from heaven some old guy telling you exactly what to do. And then, if that's not working, you, you do these things to try to conjure God's favor out of the situation, and you can maybe stop the bleeding of fear. But behind Jonathan's words is this implicit trust. God can do great things. And I am seeking to follow and to glorify Him and do everything that I can to make much of the name of Jesus as it were in our day. That is something that God works with. Because even if you have failed when that happens, and a great many people have failed with that rationale, you are failing in the right direction. And God is not going to thunderbolt you How dare you try to glorify God? We, his people, should be more like Jonathan confident and secure that God is who he says he is and has invested his people with a kind of trust himself. You've been invested with gifts, you have seen what is great and what is good. Go bear his image in the world with creativity and vitality and courage. Climb that gorge. Of course, we are people who often are afraid. Maybe you wouldn't say that about yourself. Maybe you wouldn't say, I'm a naturally and often fearful person. But I think what's, what's most dangerous is the place that where we're often the most fearful. And what we are afraid of, I think, is that we are afraid that God is much like Saul. We are not so much afraid to be like Saul. We are afraid that God is like Saul. What I mean is, in this last portion of chapter 14, Saul gives this irrational command. Do not eat anything. And his son doesn't know it. For whatever reason, the message doesn't get out. Jonathan's busy cleaning battle stuff off of him. Nobody tells him, yo, dude, don't eat anything. Your dad is mad right now. So Jonathan is entirely innocent. And he does what seems to be an innocent and good thing. He gets a snack after kicking tail, and his dad finds out, and instead of his dad saying, maybe I went over the line here, his dad says, yeah, you're going to have to die. You broke the command. You're going to die now. And isn't this often how we feel that God actually is? God is like, seems like quiet And and mysterious and he's not telling you what to do and you feel like there's these instructions hovering out there that other people have access to but for some reason you don't have access to and you're just afraid that if you make the wrong choice in life then God is waiting to say well, doesn't matter if you knew or not you're going to die now my friend these are the rules, you broke them, doesn't matter if you didn't know them A lot of times we are afraid that God is like Saul. This irrationally angry person who is ready to throw down the hammer even on his beloved son. But in the text, we meet people all the time and we are not supposed to read in the text these people's actions and say, that's a good idea. That must be what the Bible is saying is good. Saul is not here presented as a hero. Saul's actions are not here presented as the actions of a good or wise or just person. And most importantly, it is important to root out Saul is not like God. Saul is not like God. In the story, we have the king and his son and the people. And the people have to save his son from this angry, irrational, unwise, unjust king. But what the story of the Bible is telling us is that in this scenario with the king and his son and the people, God is actually far different. See, from the beginning, the lie has always been, God does not want to do good to you. Read it. Read it in Genesis. When the serpent comes to Adam and Eve, what is his lie? God is holding out on you. He does not want to do good to you. See, in Saul's case, he has provided this crazy command You have worked hard all day. Eat nothing. You may eat nothing. But in the garden, God says to his people, you can eat everything. Don't eat this one thing. You can eat everything in this perfect and beautiful garden. Work hard. Enjoy life. Eat and enjoy the fruit of your labor. This world is bountiful and lush and verdant. Eat from everything. Do not eat from this one tree. And the serpent in that garden, in that forest, says, God is holding out on you. And we, in that moment, view God like Saul behaves in 1 Samuel 14. He he doesn't let us have anything. It's like dealing with children. Never let me have anything. What's terrifying about having children is that you're seeing what you feel on the inside but have learned that you can't behave like on the outside. So you can see how your child feels and you're like, I totally understand what you're feeling right now. I feel it all the time. And we feel that way towards God. You're holding out on us. But God is standing in His forest and His garden. He is not like Saul. He offers generosity. In 1 Samuel 14, the people know the command and they obey it. But His Son does not. But in our circumstances, we the people, we have heard the command and we have willingly broken it. If God were to gather us all together and cast lots, the stone would fall on us. We are the ones who have broken the command to not take and eat, and we have eaten. And if God was like Saul, we who are far worse than Jonathan in this story, we would die we have heard the command, and we have broken it. And we have not broken an irrationally heavy command. We have broken a fair and just command. And we have done it knowingly. But God is not like Saul. And Jesus is better than Jonathan. In 1 Samuel 14, the people speak up for the Son... And the text says that they ransom Him. They stand up and they say, you cannot let Him pay this price. Though He is technically guilty of what you say He is guilty of, you cannot let Him pay the price. But in the grand story of the Bible with the King and the Son and the people, the Son stands up for the people because the King Himself also doesn't want the people to die. Jesus interposes Himself. He steps in between the stones of judgment and the people on whom they should rightly fall. And Jesus ransoms the people instead of the people ransoming the prince. And this is all done with the approval of the king. See, even in, in the scenario of the gospel, we tend to think that the king is still sitting there aching to crush you. Oh, if I could just, oh, well, Jesus, you stopped me, but I'm going to get you next time. This time, Jesus, stopped me. We paint this picture as if the father and the son are at odds over his people. But the father and the son are unified in their desire to themselves ransom the people. This is an invitation to freedom. You cannot live a life of freedom like Jonathan seems to exhibit if you forever think that the king and his son or at odds over you, and the the king is waiting to crush you. The king cannot wait to drop thunderbolts on your head. The truth of the matter is that we, the people, have always gathered before God as the ones who have broken the command. We are the ones who have knowingly rebelled against the just and good king. And it has always been the story of the Bible that the king and his son were conspiring together that he would reclaim and ransom his people who have rightly won judgment. The whole story of the Bible here is that the king wants to bring his people home. Though you and I have pushed and pushed against him as if he's withholding, as if he is angry, as if we should be fearful of him. The king has again and again said, I am good and I intend to do good and I will do good to my people. And although they've treated him as if he's withholding it, as if they've run off to other gods who they think can offer what he is not offering them, he has again held out his hands again and again and again offering bounty, saying, take and eat from everything, everything. Everything ultimately stretching out his hands and presenting himself and saying, take and eat. This is my body that is broken for you. This is my blood that is shed for you. The king is not like Saul. The king here, King Saul, he is a poor and cheap king. He is the king that Israel has clamored for. And he is the king that God intends to supersede. If you're in this room, you have been or are afraid of God, either for good reason or for bad reasons. If you're here today and you know that you have heard that command... Do not eat of this tree. Do not try to think that you can decide what is good and evil. Do not try to occupy the role of king in your own life. You know that if you have taken of that fruit and you have tried to be that one thing that you cannot be, you have good reason to be afraid of God because you have acted as rebel against him. And you do not rebel against the king and not face capital punishment. Treason is punishable by death anywhere and everywhere. And this morning, for the first time, you may stand here and say, I deserve to die. You are fearful for a good reason. Yet you need not be fearful anymore. Because God wants to ransom you and redeem you. And you may be here, and you have been afraid of God for no reason, for a long time, You've been a church person for a long time. You trust Jesus. That's real and true, but something deep inside of you has taught you, either from other bad examples or from the sin that still lies dormant in your heart, that you should fear God as if He wants to do harm to you, as if He is waiting to trip you up in some invisible command you didn't even know so that He can punish you for reasons that you can't quite discern. You should not be afraid of God. And that may be the work of a lifetime to unwind that fear because it's so tangled up in all of your experiences in sin. But that is why the story of Jesus is historical, invisible, and the cross is in front of you all the time. Because this is the revelation of what God is like. The King who you are afraid of wants to crush Not you, but was pleased to crush his son. That's what it says in Isaiah that God was pleased to crush his son so that you, his people, might be ransomed. The cross stands in front of both groups of people. You could be afraid of God for good reason, you might be afraid of God for reasons that should not be. But the answer, the solution, is in front of you all the same it is the cross. If you have been afraid of God as you should be because you have been trying to be your own king, you have been trying to operate as your own decider of what is good and evil, let today be the day that you be done without fear. Because the king and the prince have conspired to save you and bring you home. And if you have walked with Jesus for a long time and for some reason still yet fear Him, the cross stands before you, be done today. Do not be afraid of him. He is the king of love. And even you, little puny you, he might yet do great things because he delights to do so. The cross is the abolition, the destruction of fear for the people of God. No longer be bound by that tyrant and yet, instead, be bound to him in love. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> God, we thank you that you are not like Saul. <clears throat> we thank you, God, that <clears throat> you invite us into a life, yes, of obedience. <clears throat> but it is obedience not born out of fear, but it is obedience born out of love. That you invite us into a kind of life where we can look around with with freedom and creativity and courage and say, might we yet do something big for God, trusting that even when we fail, we are not failing out of your love. God, I pray for all those who are here who stand before the king and his son and know that were the lots to be cast, they would cast down on them. They are the ones who have rebelled. I pray God that you would very clearly see, help them see that they have beside them in front of them an advocate and a substitution. They have in Jesus a ransom for their life. That you delight to save them. I pray, God, that all of us here might see the cross. And we would not pass it by because it is common. That we would not pass it by because it is what we see every Sunday. But we would stop again. That our knees would hit the ground and our hearts would be filled with gratitude. There in the cross we have a proclamation of the goodness of the King who has surely come, who is delighted to save us, and to whom we owe our lives, to whom we gladly give all our lives. We thank you for your kindness and your patience towards us, God. Help us to enjoy them more and more every day. Amen.